Romans 11 has historically been debated. Uh, I've been a part of many debates regarding Romans 11. It's the infamous chapter that says all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Um, that's something we'll get into next week. Um, and uh, what I, some of you guys may know Pastor Ken Jones from uh, Commitment. Um, our relationship is one I appreciate deeply, and it's one that uh, historically has been deepened by debate and conflict. And Romans 11 was actually the first debate we ever had, and so um, it was almost like a full circle moment um, and just being able to spend time in the text and uh, have that memory. Um, but before we get into the actual word, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll work our way through Romans 11. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, waking us up this morning, giving us this day. Um, and I just pray that as we spend time uh, in your word, that you would just be with us, um, that you would teach us, that you would remove the distractions uh, from my heart, from our hearts, um, just so that we can hear from you and learn from you and um, just see you more clearly today. Um, have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So we left off with uh, Paul telling us, that when it comes to receiving the gospel, there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Uh, Paul quotes Isaiah. This is back in Romans 11. Gary taught us. Um, Paul's quoting Isaiah to encourage teaching and evangelizing all people. And Paul quotes Moses and Isaiah uh, to communicate ultimately the stubbornness of Israel uh, and that God would then reach the Gentile nations um, and bring them into the fold, if you will. And so the state of Israel at this time um, they're looking around and seeing Gentiles kind of uh, saved in mass and quickly. Uh, and then they're looking around at their kinsmen, the Jewish people are looking around at uh, the other Israelites and realizing they're not accepting this as uh, much as the Gentiles are. That this new way through the Messiah, uh, who they don't accept as the Messiah, doesn't seem to be spreading or catching on in the same way that it is with the Gentiles. And even Paul, who obviously himself was very much Jewish, He's a descendant of the promise, the covenant given to the nation of Israel. He's a man who persecuted and even attacked the people that he is now numbered among, uh, these, these so-called Christians. Um, and even he's convinced of Jesus as the Messiah and Savior. Um, we know there were questions around Paul's Judaism from those who were Jewish, um, thinking that he had turned away or renounced his Jewish faith and tradition. Uh, we saw that in Acts. And even Paul is looking around and he's grieving the fact that he doesn't see other Jews turning to the Messiah. And so Paul addresses a concern, one he may have even had, uh, or, uh, or those of the remnant, those who did actually believe in Christ. And he's looking around for other Jews and realizing that they're kind of hard to come by uh, within the church. And so he starts and, he, and addresses kind of the concern with this in the very first verse of um, chapter 11. And he says, I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be. So has God rejected his people? In other words, has God given up on Israel? Is God no longer God, is, is Israel no longer God's chosen people? Has God ended his promise and his faithfulness to this people? And Paul says, of course not. May it never be. Of course we know God is faithful to his promises and God has not broken his covenant with his people. In fact, it was Israel who has broken the covenant with God. And I'll read Jeremiah 11 really quick, just so we see that here. Um, this is Jeremiah 11, starting in verse 7. It says, For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, rising up early and warning, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought them on, brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. 
Then Yahweh said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back the, to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have walked after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. And therefore, uh, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing calamity on them, which they will not be able to get out of, and they will cry to me, and I will not listen to them. Just a little bit farther. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they surely will not save them in time of their calamity. For your gods are the number of your cities, O Judah, and the number of streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up for the shameful things, altars to burn incense to Baal. And so we see that the people of Israel had broken their covenant with God because they were not obedient, because they did not have true worship towards the one true God. Um, and so there, the covenant was broken not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And here's what I think we can take away not only from Jeremiah, but also from what we'll see throughout Romans 11, uh, which is that ethnicity has not, is not, and will never be what saves people. It will never be what makes a person right with God. Even for Israel, being a descendant of Abraham wasn't enough. What was required was true worship, true faith, and obedience from, you know, from the past all the way through today will always be what God requires. And so they broke the, the, the covenant, and God technically owed them nothing at the time. He could have walked away and said, well, you broke the covenant, that's it. But God, being as faithful as he is, promised to them that he would establish a new covenant and with them because he's so faithful and long-suffering and patient. So Paul, again, in the very first verse, says that God has not rejected his people or given up on his people, that he remains faithful. And then Paul goes on in verse 1, it says, For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is making the case that, again, I'm Jewish. I have skin in this game. I have interest in this. I care deeply about the concern for Israel. And here I'll remind you Paul's heart back in Romans 9. He says, I have a great sorrow. This is the very first, uh, first few verses of Romans 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all. And so here's Paul's heart towards his people as he sees that they're not giving their lives to Jesus, that they're not accepting Christ as the Messiah. He's looking around and grieved by the fact that he sees very little people accepting Jesus as the Messiah. These are the people who were given the promise. These are the people who were given the prophecy, given the law, who were given really the entire roadmap to salvation um, that points to what they would have known as Yeshua HaMashiach, meaning Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that they have been promised, the one they've been waiting for, praying for, for thousands of years. And Paul says, how have so many people missed it? He says, I'd rather trade places with them, ultimately so that I'd even trade my salvation. He says, I'd rather be accursed, separated from Christ, trading his salvation so that they would come to know and believe upon Christ. So this is a personal for Paul. He himself wants to know that God has a plan for Israel because he cares. He has skin in this game. He has, he has an interest in this. Moving on to verse two, Paul affirms again, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He goes on, or do you not 
know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And so here's this quote from Elijah back from 1 Kings, and Elijah's feeling the same exact thing that Paul may be feeling now. And so Paul points back to it, which is that Elijah felt like he was the only one left faithful to God. Um, he's looking around and feels like there's literally no one else, that he was the only Jewish person still faithful uh, to, to God. Um, in Elijah's time, he says that they were killing the prophets, they were tearing down altars, they even wanted to kill Elijah himself. Um, he was convinced that he truly was the only Israel, single Israelite in the world that still hadn't turned to Baal. But God showed him otherwise. Verse 4 says, but what does the divine response say to Elijah? It says, I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul too shows that even in, in his day, where it felt like they couldn't find a faithful Israelite who would follow Christ, God would respond by leaving a remnant. And he says this in the next verse. He says, in this way, just as it was with Elijah, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, has also come to be. So God was super specific about with Elijah saying there were 7,000 still that were worshiping him truly that hadn't turned and bowed their knee to Baal. And so Paul affirms again for in his day that there too is a remnant. And I believe, what's my personal interpretation of the text, that that would go on to through today in the church age, that there's a remnant of the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Israel, true Israel, um, where God has kept a remnant for, uh, through, for, to his covenant people. So I believe you can look around today, you know, in mass, you see those of historical Israel, uh, which I'll point out is pr probably difficult to identify, at least from our perspective. Um, and I'll get more into that in a second. Uh, but those whose lineage are from the 12 tribes, for the most part, still reject their Messiah. Um, and I, I think we see that still today. Um, and yet you'll find the remnant or those men and women, um, and I'll name a few, uh, Rabbi Jason Sobel, these are a few guys that I follow. Uh, he actually has, Rabbi Jason Sobel has a um, congregation here in New Jersey, actually. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown here might be familiar with him. Um, and then many people brought a little prop. Um, this is a Tree of Life Bible, Tree of Life version. Um, same content, same 66 books, but um, they preserved some of the tradition of how the Jewish people would have read the Old Testament. So the New Testament, same thing, same thing we have. Old Testament, again, same books, but different order. They would have read it in a different order, um, which they would have obviously referred to as the Tanakh, uh, which TA standing for the Torah, the Law of Moses, the Navim, N-A, uh, referring to the prophets, the Ketavim, the K-H, referring to the writings, which would have been um, like the poetic literature or the wisdom literature, but some historical books of the Old Testament, um, there were even some, like Daniel didn't even make it into the prophets. Somehow he made it into the, the Ketzavim, the writings. But um, that's how they would have read the, the, the Old Testament. So that was something preserved, again, by Messianic Jews, people who have accepted uh, Christ as their Messiah. Now, I said these, these people, these, especially of historic, historical ethnic Israel, are difficult to identify. The reason I say that is because the diaspora of ethnic Israel is actually very much a real thing. We read about it, obviously, through the Old Testament. We see it continue probably even through today, 
uh, we know from the scriptures that when Israel was exiled and they were allowed to come back into the land, some actually did stay back into the land that, in which they were exiled, whether that was Babylon or Assyria. Um, and so just from that, there's already a spread of people who are ethnic Israel, but not in the land of Israel. Um, and so they could be all over the, you know, their descendants could even be all over the world today. Um, we know historically because of persecution, many were forced out and made refugees and looked for other places to call home. We see in the book of Acts, there were Asian Jews, Jews from Asia, likely from Turkey and, and a little bit more, uh, perhaps East. Uh, we know from uh, history that the tribe of Gad, one of the 12 tribes, uh, perhaps even settled down all the way to Nigeria. Um, and so even Jesus grew up in Africa to find refuge. And so, of course, we don't believe he was the only Israelite who found refuge in Northern Africa. So um, there are people that could have found refuge in Asia or even heading towards the West. And so again, that diaspora of the ethnic Israel, historical Israel um, is very much a real thing. And therefore truly all over the world, you can probably find ethnic Israel. On top of that, throughout history, there are times and places where there was non-ethnic Jews um, or Israelites um, that converted to uh, Judaism and not only converted to Judaism, but actually moved to Israel, the land of Israel itself. And so it's very difficult for us to identify who ethnic Israel is um, and therefore, you know, we can't, we can't apply and say, oh, well, they're ethnic Israel. They have, they're under the promise and the covenant. Um, so can we identify ethnic Israel today by where someone was born, by their skin color, by their nationality even? No, of course not. Um, but that shouldn't even be important to us because what the point of Jeremiah, the point of Romans 11 and the entire uh, gospel is that the only way through salvation is through salvation, uh, faith in Christ. Um, it's not by you know, uh, ethnicity, nationality, skin color, obviously anything like that. It's the same for the Jews as it is for the Greek and the Gentile. Paul says this uh, remnant in verse, and this was from verse five, according to God's gracious choice, that's this remnant has come to be. And then Paul kind of explains that in, in verse six, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So this is really cool to me. I, I see Paul do this a couple of times. It's like a live hermeneutic in the text. And it's just, I think that's so cool because it's, you know, it's, it's in scripture. Therefore, it's under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's like we have this problem today where we listen to teachers and we're not sure if we're getting a good interpretation and we have to test it and test it. Uh, but here we have Paul under the divine inspiration. So the interpretation itself is under divine inspiration, which is just really cool. And this is just a simple version of that, I, you know. Uh, basically Paul saying, if we have a correct definition of what grace is, then that necessarily means that it, it is not and cannot be by our works, um, which is to give us a good understanding and correct definition of grace. And you see Paul do this. I saw him, he's done it in Hebrews. Galatians 3 is a good example of it. Um, when he's referring to Abraham's seed, he says not seeds as if referring to many, uh, but referring to one, that one is Christ. And so that, again, that live hermeneutic of Paul, like working out um, the text for us and, and flushing that out for us is, is just really cool. Because again, it's under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we can be sure of that. That is perfect and true. Move on to verse seven. It says, what then, uh, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. So he's, re he's referring to, uh, again, the remnant that God has left in his day. And I would say even throughout today, um, the chosen, those remnant have obtained the salvation. So what is Israel generally seeking? Gen generally, Israel seeking the knowledge of the truth, right? These were God's people. They wanted to know God. They wanted to know the truth. 
um, which we know, of course, today is through Jesus Christ only. And they were seeking it, but only some, the remnant, obtained it. He says the rest were hardened. And so what I'll say about the hardening is this. Good biblical theology tells us that all men are fully responsible for their sin. We were just talking about this before we started. All men are fully responsible for their sin, um, and included in that is their stubbornness. They are responsible for the rejection of the truth. At the same time, God clearly hardens hearts. We talked about it earlier, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, but I would imagine not without Pharaoh first rejecting uh, in his own heart that he wanted nothing to do with God. And so Paul is actually going to double down on this, explaining the hardening in the next couple of verses here. And so let's go ahead and read those. Uh, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Um, this is really tough scripture to read through, um, but it is in here, right? Um, so I'll point out again, man is fully responsible for its rejection of Christ, but at the same time, God is hardening, God blinds, God deafens those who he sovereignly, uh, has chosen not to receive, um, this, you know, to be a part of this remnant. And so whatever that means, however, that's worked out. It's, it's for the Lord, it's for God, it's, it's a mystery, the secret things belong to him, um, but it is uh, clearly what is here in the scripture. So uh, we trust that he's doing it for a good purpose. And this stumbling block language may even sound familiar, not only because it's Old Testament, but we heard it back in Romans 9. Um, and I'm going to read Romans 9, 31 through 33, says this, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, Behold, I am laying laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. So question to you guys, who's the stumbling block? That's what I got, Jesus. It says, and the one who believes upon him, him as the stumbling block, will not be put to shame. So why is he calling... Jesus a stumbling block and more specifically why a rock of offense yeah I I agree with both of those I think if I worked out basically what you both just said I'm gonna work it out this way it says uh because in order to believe upon Jesus as our savior right it's for them this is for Israel right the stumbling block a rock of offense of Israel but also for us today to believe upon Christ as savior you must acknowledge your own inadequacy Right. You said they wanted to work it out when he was just trying to hand it to them. You know, so so you must accept your spiritually dead state. You must accept your own sinful nature and your own guiltiness. You must accept your and not acknowledge that your own inability to earn your salvation, that you can't work and do anything to earn your salvation. That's offensive because it says that I, there are problems with me, that I'm unable, inadequate. I have problems. I have I'm spiritually dead. I'm sinful. I'm guilty. To share that with people so that they understand that they need a savior is going to be offensive. It's a stumbling block for people, but it's supposed to be because hopefully we fall on our face and realize, oh, I do need a savior, right? So to tell someone you're not good enough, you're spiritually dead and therefore unable to revive yourself and you're worthy of hell because you've committed cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul has called it, against the holy God of all creation. 
And I actually made a Facebook post about this a couple of weeks ago, um, basically just listing off the things that I just mentioned. Um, but I actually went a step farther too. And I, I thought how arrogant of us when we don't share the gospel because we think we're being offensive, right? Like it's almost self-centered for us to think we're the ones being offensive. It's the gospel, the very the objective truth that we can't save ourselves that we're trying to share with people. It's not us that's being offensive. We're not the rock of offense. We're not the stumbling block. Christ is. It's the same thing when we, um, you know, try to, or we don't share the gospel because we're fearful of uh, our own rejection or being rejected. We're not the ones being rejected. It's Christ that's being rejected. You know, so it's even, you know, again, self-centered and almost arrogant when we don't, because we're, we're looking at ourselves as if we're the ones causing the, the, the rock of offense or causing the offense or causing the stumbling block. Um, and especially in the context of which we're trying to share with people who otherwise would be on their way to hell. You know, how, I mean, it, they're going to be offended when they get to hell and realize you didn't tell them, you know, it's like, it'll probably just work through the discomfort in the moment just to tell them the gospel. But let's go to uh, verse 11. Paul says, I say then, did they stumble as to fall? So meaning, did they stumble as, did they have they been cut off from God permanently or altogether? And are they no longer the chosen people of God, right? That, I think that's what we're getting at here. Did, did they stumble as to fall? And Paul says, may it never be, also known as just no, right? Um, but it says, moving on to verse 11, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And so at first glance, it seems kind of petty of God, right? <laughs> um, and I'm being a little facetious, but of course, like, you know, God doesn't play those games. But here's the beauty in this verse, which I think is so easy to read by. And feel free to let me know if this is a stretch. But this is my, the writer coming out of me. It says, how beautiful the sovereignty and providence of God by every inaction or action or inaction, everything that God does or allows is intentional to bring about the perfect and good chief end of his purpose and will. So think about that. And let me read verse 11 again. All right. By their transgression, by Israel's transgression, okay, the thing that is not good, the thing that does not, that God does not condone, the thing that God has no responsibility for, right? Israel is fully responsible for their rejection and their unfaithfulness. So God passively, but intentionally, allows their transgression. All right. God hands them over to their fleshly desires. If you think about it that way, right? Um, the passion, which I won't call another translation, the passion paraphrase, um, God lifted his restraining hand. When, when it talks about God handing them over to their lusts and their fleshly desires, lifting his restraining hand, that God can restrain us from our sin, but he didn't hear with Israel, right? It says, by their transgression, by this, or in other words, in response to this, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. So God here again, intentionally, not passively, takes action to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But it doesn't stop there. He says, for what purpose? It says to make them, Israel, jealous. Or in other words, in love to draw them back to himself, right? And so again, how beautiful the sovereignty and providence of God that by every action or inaction, everything that God does or allows is intentional to bring about the perfect and good chief end of his purpose and his will. To draw people to himself, right? And so we may look at this and say, <clears throat> why is God causing this hardening? Why is God not being faithful in the way that we might want him to be faithful to Israel, uh, to his people? But again, understanding who he is, who he is, how good he is, how faithful he is to his people, that ultimately he is drawing people to himself. That's what he does. He's in the business of drawing people to himself. And to believe that this is all a part of that plan, to draw Israel back to himself. 
and of course we're going to see next week um what that looks like and how that, that how that could be worked out um but that is the chief end of, of god to bring people to himself that he'd be glorified um so if we understand the beauty of god's character right even the tough passages of scripture we find the beauty of god's heart which is ultimately to be glorified and drawing all mankind to himself um and this actually hits home with me because i've, I've recently been burdened specifically with people close to me and people that i love with like seeing their their lack of hunger for christ or like their disinterest in jesus and it's like i I almost want to hit them over the head with a bible and just like shove it into them like can you can you get it like like it's just frustrating but i've been reminded time and time again by brothers and and people uh just to to pray for them and put it in god's hands you know the same way god drew me to himself he can draw them to, to himself um and really just trying to lean into that and trust that um and so it's a good reminder for myself just to know that God is in the business of drawing people to himself and he will do whatever he needs to do to do that. And I don't have to hit people with a Bible. So, um, and we're going to wrap up there. Uh, there's absolutely no good place to like end this chapter. Um, <laughs> uh, I was actually tempted to go through the whole chapter one week, but I wasn't going to do that to Gary's schedule. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. This whole second half deserves its own standalone message. So we're definitely going to reconvene next week for the second half of uh, Romans 11.